Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. My parents were remarkable people. They weren't ones to overly romanticize the past or dwell too much imagining an uncertain future. They were people of the here and the now. And in 1968, they embraced the times in which they lived. My father was a Protestant African-American man, the descendant of enslaved people. He and his family were part of the Great Migration, the movement where more than six million African-Americans left the rural South to find relief from the scourge of Jim Crow. My mother is a first-generation American of Russian Jewish heritage. Her family took the Great Leap from Russia to North America at the turn of the last century to find their own relief from anti-Semitic programs that swept through Europe. My parents' all too familiar American trajectories collided in Washington, D.C., and they married in 1958. As you may imagine, they had a beautiful, wide-ranging assortment of friends, the diverse ages and backgrounds that they loved to entertain. 1968 was no ordinary time. It was, however, a time very similar to our own, a period of great upheaval, uncertainty, and national anxiety. We were in the midst of a grinding, growingly unpopular war and a contentious general election. There were acts of political violence that ignited riots across the nation, and of course, a worldwide viral pandemic that claimed over 100,000 American lives. As the saying goes, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. So what did my parents do in the face of such turmoil? They embraced the times in which they lived, and they threw a psychedelic-themed dance party. Now, I was just four years old and was not included on the guest list, but I was a keen observer and made note of all the preparations. Colorful, oversized, daisy cutouts, love beads, dashikis, and most memorably, the velvet blacklight posters they hung throughout the basement. I never tired of the thrill of the blacklight's magic. We turn it on, and the colors of the blacklight, the black velvet posters, quivered with a vibrancy that my young mind had never imagined. But it wasn't all good. One of the posters was of an ethereal feminine spirit emerging from the flames of a bonfire, dancing to an unheard music with the caption, light my fire. As a dutiful son, this scared me. My parents repeatedly warned me of the forbiddenness of matches and the danger of fire. 
Yet this woman seemed to beckon the destruction. I was unnerved by her wantonness every time I passed by. The psychedelic party became legendary among their friends. And years later, when I was old enough to understand the full complexities of adult life, I ever heard one of their friends remark with unsettling earthiness, ooh, ooh, that was a good party. In my mind, their flower power season of love dance party suddenly morphed into a disconcerting Nero-esque bacchanal that I pushed from consciousness. The memory of that party burned bright in the minds of the revelers for a long, long time. Unfortunately, less than five years later, the light in my father's eyes would dim forever when he suffered an untimely death at just 46. And now, in an assisted living facility in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., another fire is ravaging my mother's mind, laying waste to her speech and memories. As you know, a biological conflagration is sweeping across our great nation, and congregate living facilities are the kind of dry kiln that's particularly vulnerable to these errant viral sparks. I work as a physician, performing minimally invasive surgical procedures, and have spent the past several months in an ICU helping our vulnerable patients in need. At its peak, the ICU surged to three times its usual volume. We were only able to stay afloat with assistance of visiting practitioners from around the country. Indiana, Texas, Florida, North Carolina, Arkansas, and Fall River, Massachusetts sent its nurses, respiratory therapists, and intensivists who helped us successfully weather the surge. They've returned home now, and I'd like to believe the worst is behind us. But congregate living facilities are still profoundly vulnerable. The CDC estimates that 2.1 million Americans live in nursing homes or residential care facilities, representing just 0.6% of the U.S. population. Yet these residents represent 11% of all 11 COVID-19 infections across America and 42% of all U.S. 19 COVID deaths. There is a biologic conflagration sweeping across America. And our most vulnerable citizens are at greater peril than ever before. I believe testing, personal protective equipment, as well as an army of relief healthcare, relief healthcare workers, educators, and increased access to testing, testing, testing is needed for our vulnerable congregate living family and the devoted staff that serves them. I do not share my parents' temperament. I am not instinctively a here and now kind of person. I come from the world of the doers. I'm more of a low level workaholic, hope for the best, prepare for tomorrow kind of person. It often leaves me anticipating an idealized future that I rarely get to fully inhabit. But as the urgency of the pandemic 
began to build, I knew something significant was at hand. I set aside some of my instinctive ways and learned to embrace the great moment we inhabit. In the dawn hours, I became time's witness, walking the city without any purpose other than to appreciate the architecture, gardens, vast unpopulated urban landscapes, and the emergence of spring. I'm still productive in my, in my isolation. Some things never change. But I'm not eager to get back to normal. And I'm not obsessively preparing to create a new normal. I'm appreciating the richness of the life that I inhabit now. My time horizon doesn't extend further than a week. And I have hope this experience will lead me to a more grounded, balanced, connected, and mindful existence. I still have my productive cycle of distractions, cleaning, organizing, running, email mitigation, rinse, repeat. But I am ever mindful of the dangerous storms that are still burning across our grand republic of suffering. Even the purple heliotrope my husband planted in our garden quivers with a familiar unsettling vibrancy, reminding me of that mischievous fright. My greatest hope for my mother is in her final chapters. When it's her time, I can bring her in for a gentle landing. I can't do that if I'm physically unable to be with her. This would be my greatest catastrophe. In my anxiety, I find myself silently whispering, please, don't light this fire. My beloved spiritual companions, these are no ordinary times. Many years from now, when you are asked Mary Oliver's existential final test question, what did you do with your one wild and precious life? I, can, I hope you can answer, like my parents, you embraced the times in which you live. And in the cacophony and tumult of 2020, with our nation in crisis and humanity under siege, you did not submit to despair, but instead turned on the music, turned up the volume. Songs in extraordinary times and held your own personal, virtual, psychedelic dance party of incandescent brightness for all the world to behold. Each week, Reverend Kim reminds us, the service begins when this service ends. This week, dedicate time to the service of being good to yourselves. Bless your hearts. Amen. 
Activist Emma Goldman said, if I can't dance to it, it's not my revolution. Since last Sunday, when Herschel first told me about his parents' psychedelic dance party, and we began the conversation that culminated in this sermon, I hear the refrain, embrace the times in which you live. Instead of recoiling in horror, disgust, get curious, go deeper. Herschel's father, John, suffered a series of heart attacks six in seven years. Some of his passion for life was a keen sense that he was living on borrowed time. And aren't we all? I'm reminded once again that while we don't choose our hand, we can choose how to play it. Here's an amazing story told by entrepreneur and author Jen Ekstrom. It was 2008 and the economy was rough, but Brad and Angelina were still together. The iPhone was barely a year old and Instagram wasn't invented yet. Britney Spears had made her comeback. Life was going okay. I was a senior in high school, she says, so all that was on my mind was hoping I was going to go to a college that had cute boys and wondering what away message I was going to put up on my AOL instant messenger. It was early December. On the morning of my English exam, I walked downstairs to be fed a breakfast of champions. That was our morning tradition, eat breakfast and have the news playing in the background. The morning news wasn't on. My mom looked like she'd been crying, and my dad looked like he was in a fog. Jess's parents were evasive when she asked them what was wrong. She pressed them. Her mother left the room, and her father finally said, things are going to be different around here. We lost all our money, but we're going to be okay. He told her, don't tell anyone at school. Don't watch the news, and good luck on your exam. Coming home after school, Jess went into the guest room that was down a hallway near the garage where her parents wouldn't hear the TV. She turned on the news, and then she saw it, her uncle's face on every national news channel. Does anyone want to guess who her uncle was? Bernie Madoff. Just writes, every channel had the faces of Uncle Bernie and other members of our family. There was a loud buzzing in my ears. Eventually, pieces of information started to filter through. Bernie Madoff, fraud, Ponzi scheme, life in prison, victims. Staring at that TV screen, I was in awe of the fact that I was connected to this person who could do something so awful. The biggest financial fraud in the history of Wall Street, stealing more than $65 billion from a huge list of clients. I told my parents I knew. Everything had changed. The Ekstroms did not wake up the next morning and say, everything happens for a reason. They felt it all. But then one day, not too long afterwards, Jess and her family were in an elevator. A man got on and blurted out, 
I lost my daughter two weeks ago in a car accident. It was like being shouted awake. They had lost their money, but they still had each other. Jess's grandparents in their 70s were catapulted out of retirement, having always loved making long car trips. They pulled taxi permits, put a magnet with their phone number on the side of their car, and started an airport ride service. The first job they took was New Year's Eve, 2008, only 23 days after discovering they had lost everything. Over the next eight years, they made 25,000 trips. While we don't choose our hand, we can choose how to play it. I returned to Herschel's parents, Elaine and John, Washington, D.C., 1968, refusing to give in to despair. The image of that feminine spirit emerging from the flames, a phoenix from the ashes. Light my fire. These days, it feels as if the world is on fire. As we honor the queer people who rose up for liberation on whose shoulders we all stand today, as we join in the movement for black lives and dedicate ourselves to the ongoing struggle for justice and freedom, let us not fall victim to the privilege of despair. I want to close by telling a brief personal story. On April 25th, 1993, a million people marched on Washington for queer rights. I gave the sermon that morning at All Souls Unitarian in DC, and three things happened that day I will never forget. In reverse order, after the service, sorry, wait. <laughs> Standing in the sunshine on the front steps of the church, a woman asked me if she could take my picture. And that woman was Kem Moorhead. She proceeded to march with me. We marched together, and we have been marching together ever since. As the prelude was concluding, and the participants filed into the pulpit, there was a loud disturbance in the vestibule. The front door of the church swung open, and an excited buzz rippled through the pews. Folding chairs banged and scraped across the floor, and ushers hurriedly set them up across the front. The board of directors of the Unitarian Universalist Association had been meeting in Boston when they cast a formal, unanimous vote to adjourn their meeting, get on a plane, and fly to Washington to march with us. From the pulpit, I could see a large group of people walking down the center aisle two by two, President Bill Schultz and moderator Natalie Goldbranson leading the way. It was one of my proudest moments as a Unitarian Universalist. And very early that morning, the service participants had gathered in the minister's study. Amidst a sea of diverse people, united by our gayness, was an African-American couple, wife and husband. They were dressed for church. I remember her beautiful suit and hat and gloves. 
I made my way across the room to sit with them. What brings you here today? Oh, she answered, we remember that you were here. You, meaning Unitarian Universalists. We remember that you were here when we marched with Martin. And now we're here marching with you. Beloved spiritual companions, John and Elaine McGinnis were of the here and now. What does it mean for us to embrace this great moment? While we don't choose our hand, we can choose how to play it. In the cacophony and tumult of 2020, with our nation in crisis and humanity under siege, let us not brook despair, but instead turn on the music and light the fire. Let us march together. Together, let us dance this revolution. Amen. And now for our benediction, I invite you to put your hands over your heart in namaste. I bow to the divine in you. Our benediction is from Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Someday after mastering winds, waves, tides, and gravity, we shall harness the energies of love. And then, for the second time in the history of the world, we will discover fire. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen.
please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.